I was not a cool kid. And now, I'm not a cool adult. Although, I do wear my snapbacks backwards and always respond with, too short, when a coworker asks me how my weekend was. Also, I wear vests to weddings instead of sports jackets and always drink my beers in a beer glass, even if I'm drinking a Miller Lite. Shout out to that fine pilsner, by the way. So scratch what I said. I am cool. What were we talking about again? Oh yeah, I was not a cool kid. Though, I wanted to be cool. I tried every which way to try to gain the respect and attention of my peers in an effort of convincing myself I was, in fact, cool. It wasn't until when in seventh grade I picked up the guitar and started learning a few chords that I actually started to believe my inner monologue's opinion that I was becoming cool. I learned how to play guitar in my dad's old Yamaha, another shout out this time to Yamaha, the great acoustic guitar slash jet ski manufacturer. I had my first guitar lesson on August 18th, 2005. I remember that date because it was the third Thursday that August. That month traumatized me because Seminole County, Florida had the audacity to start the school year on August motherfucking 1st. Anyways, that first lesson took place at the Jewish Community Center in Maitland, Florida with this cool guitar teacher named Ron who had the A.C. Slater style mullet. I'm pretty sure he taught me C, A minor, and G during that afternoon. I took practicing seriously and soon learned my first three songs, Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, what I Like About You by The Romantics, and Green Day's Good Riddance Time of Your Life. Of course, none of my peers cared about classic rock or new wave, but Green Day was all the rage in the summer of 2005, so when I brought my guitar to school and such, people always wanted to hear Good Riddance. Fast forward to May of 2007, when my advanced drama class, which I was chosen to be in only because the drama teacher, quote, liked my name, did an end-of-the-year show for the outgoing 8th graders. I'm not sure if I acted in that show, but my friend Brandon and I sang the Green Day classic in front of the entire 8th grade class with myself on guitar. Brandon and I brought the house down. Even though I'm pretty sure he pointed the microphone that we had, the only one that we had, in neither of our directions. Still, walking off that stage for a certain amount of time, I'm not sure for how long, I felt cool. So I thought that bringing that guitar to any kind of social event would keep me feeling like a cool guy. At the end of that summer, I joined a Jewish youth group called United Synagogue Youth, better known as USY. For our first event, we went to a campground for a few days in Pensacola, Florida to do summer camp activities like tubing down a river, rock climbing, and color war. For color war, the green team summoned me to shred the chords to an interpolation of the song Just a Girl by the Click Five to proclaim to the judges that the green team was, in fact, the best. But when the judges tallied the points from all the different competitive activities that day, turns out we weren't. Not winning Color War lacked importance to me because I had won over the respect of my peers through spending the week showcasing my ability to play random four-chord songs, in turn maintaining my self-imposed cool guy image. One of the next major USY events for which I schlepped my guitar occurred the following spring. Essentially, the event served as a weekend retreat for young Jews, and I sought to further my cool guy spirit into uncharted, even cooler guy waters. I discovered how that feeling can diminish quickly that weekend, as I found out that not everybody has my taste in music. People were requesting songs that I hadn't heard of or just hadn't been interested in learning. One girl came up to me and asked me if I could play Collide by Howie Day. I said no. She then asked if I could play anything by Guster. 
to which I shook my head. She then proceeded to ask if I could play anything by dispatch, which I was again unable to respond to in the affirmative. At this point, I could feel the bottom of the house of cards that hosted my cool guy identity about to get flicked. Then she asked her final cutting question, quote, Do you know how to play anything? As she said this, rather than flick the foundation of said house of cards, she kicked it like she was Adam Vinatieri. In preparation for my response, internally, my thoughts scrambled to catch as many of those cards that were flying at this point so I can reel them in and restack them as soon as possible to deliver the statement that would save my honor, my integrity, my coolness. So in one fell swoop, I fired away with my response that perhaps would save face. I took a deep breath and said, quote, well, I can play Wonderwall. Hi, I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s Stand, and welcome to our second signature song episode, fourth overall. Today, we will discuss the Britpop Titans, a band perhaps as notorious as they are legendary, England's finest blowhards, Oasis. The story of Oasis begins in the town of Burnage, England, a suburb of Manchester where brothers Liam and Noel Gallagher grew up. The brothers grew up in council estates, the UK term for public housing. They unfortunately witnessed the wrath of their father who would physically and verbally abuse their mother, Peggy, in front of them. He would also physically abuse Noel. When Liam and Noel were seven and ten respectfully, their mother took the boys and escaped their father. Speaking about leaving the father of her children, Peggy stated, quote, I left him with a f- knife, a fork, and a spoon, and I still think I left him too much. Like many kids from humble beginnings that sought out music as a hobby, the Gallagher brothers dreamed of rock stardom and the hedonistic abundances success would bring. Then in 1991, a group of young musicians, guitarist Bonehead Arthurs, bassist Gwigsey McGuigan, Drummer Tony McCarroll and singer Chris Hutton formed a rock band called The Rain, named after the B-side of the Beatles' 1966 single Paperback Writer. However, the other members quickly became disenchanted with Chris Hutton on vocals and dismissed him from the band. Gwigsey knew Liam from school and asked him to audition for the band. Then upon joining the band, Liam suggested that they change their name to Oasis, taken from Swindon Oasis, the name of the Leisure Center, where a band that Noel worked as a roadie for, performed in April of 1991. Liam became aware of this venue and its name when Noel hung up the promotional poster for that gig in the shared bedroom of Liam and Noel. The newly named Oasis only practiced a few times before adding Noel as lead guitar player and primary songwriter. Entering the band with experience in live music as a roadie, Noel quickly became the band's leader, steering their focus towards commercial stardom. While the band started making a name for themselves, gigging throughout Manchester, recording demos, and making moves to get them closer to record executives, British alternative rock group Suede released their self-titled album in March of 1993. 
whose blend of glam and punk combined influences from British legends from previous decades generating comparisons to David Bowie and Morrissey. Suede became the fastest selling album in the history of the UK and is regarded as the foundation of the Britpop movement. Shortly after the release of Suede's breakthrough record, in May of 1993, Oasis played a gig at King Tut's Wawa Hut in Glasgow, Scotland, opening for the band 18 Wheeler, a band signed at the time to Creation Records. In attendance was Alan McGee, the founder of Creation Records. Impressed with their performance, he signed Oasis four days later, stating, quote, I found the greatest rock and roll band since the Beatles. With the release of their debut album, Definitely Maybe, on August 29, 1994, it became clear that despite that very strong statement, perhaps McGee was onto something. The album's aesthetic featured gritty, in-your-face rock and roll songs that sounded like The Kinks joined forces with the Beatles, Circa Revolver, with the Sex Pistols sprinkled on top. Bolstered by the success of their debut single, Supersonic, released in April of 94, the album debuted at number one on the UK charts and broke Suede's record, becoming the fastest-selling album in UK history up to that point, quickly making Oasis the face of Britpop. The band followed up positive early returns with their second single, Shaker Maker, a catchy neo-psychedelic tune named after a popular toy from the 70s, which charted higher than its predecessor and paved the way for the band's international stardom. Their third single, Live Forever, which lyrically Noel Gallagher penned as a response to Kurt Cobain's self-parody, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die, not only was a top 10 hit on the UK singles chart, but reached U.S. audiences with a peak of number two on the rock charts and brought the term Britpop to a transcontinental mainstream lexicon. For those unfamiliar with Britpop, the term refers to the musical movement developed in the early 90s in England, which many view as a reaction to grunge. The pop suffix of the term turns out to be a misnomer as the genre essentially borrowed from different eras of English rock from the 60s onwards. But with catchy melodies, accessible hooks, and optimistic lyrics intentionally contrasting the style and idiosyncrasies of grunge. In addition to Suede and Oasis, other successful Britpop acts include Blur and Pulp. Blur's significance within the world of Oasis goes beyond their shared categorization within a pop culture context, but we'll get to that in a bit. Definitely Maybe sold 8 million copies worldwide and received rave reviews from critics, with both Rolling Stone and Spin Magazine giving the album a 4.5 stars rating upon release. In March of 1995, the band headed back into the studio to record their sophomore effort, What's the Story? Morning Glory. They recorded the album at Rockfield Studios in Welsh County of Monmouthshire, the space where Queen recorded Bohemian Rhapsody. Other legendary English rock artists that recorded there include Black Sabbath, Stone Roses, and Motorhead. According to Noel, the band booked the studio for six weeks, but finished in approximately three, and that includes a week off that they took following a fight between Noel and Liam, consistent with that key theme found within the lore of Oasis. During the recording process, the band replaced drummer Tony McCarroll with Alan White as the band grew displeased with Carroll's drum skills, which they deemed underwhelming. 
White had garnered a name for himself as the drummer for, early's, for early 90s English alt-rock band Star Club. Oasis began their promotion of What's the Story Morning Glory on April 24, 1995 with the release of the album's first single, Some Might Say, the only to feature McCarroll on drums. The single, which maintained the blues rock sound found on Definitely Maybe, debuted at number one on the UK singles chart and provided one of the catalysts for the Blur vs. Oasis feud. At the party celebrating their first number one hit, Noel approached Damon Albarn, the frontman for Blur, lacking consideration for his personal space, and then loudly exclaimed, quote, Number fucking one. Damon Albarn responded with the release of Country House, the first single off Blur's then-upcoming album The Great Escape, on August 14th, of 1995, the same day What's the Story Morning Glory's second single, Roll With It, came out. Blur outsold Oasis by 58,000 copies, winning the so-called Battle of Britpop, and took their victory lap performing at Top of the Pops, an English weekly music chart television program, with the bassist of Blur wearing an Oasis shirt to mock their rivals. Nonetheless, Oasis Oasis released What's the Story Morning Glory on October 2, 1995, with 50 minutes of music and included 10 songs and two interludes. Overall, the album continued the gritty English rock sound found on the record's first two singles, albeit with a definite pop flavor. Additionally, the record did contrast their debut a bit, featuring multiple power ballads with gargantuan anthemic choruses, as well as a prominent orchestral presence. The album instantly sold well in the UK, debuting at number one on the UK Albums Chart, with 345,000 copies sold the first week. In the United States, the album reached number four, which um, fared significantly higher than its predecessor, whose highest spot peaked at 58. All four singles released in the UK reached at least number two on the singles chart there. In the United States, while none of the singles from its predecessor reached the Billboard Hot 100, two singles from What's the Story Morning Glory appeared on that chart, one of which made it into the top 10. Can you guess which one it was? Yeah, Wonderwall, of course. With 22 million copies sold to date, naturally, their 1995 effort turned them into international bonafide rock stars and, oh, by the way, obliterated Blur's The Great Escape which currently has sold just north of 1 million copies. As the first year into their crossover success, 1996 provided the world an insight into the magnitude and the magnitude of their success and the antics that would characterize the band's reputation moving forward. In February of 96, Oasis swept the Brit Awards, the British equivalent of the Grammys, winning major awards such as Best British Group, Best Album, and Best Video. Oasis, of course, didn't miss the opportunity to throw shade at Blur, with Noel and Liam mocking their rivals during one of their acceptance speeches, singing in unison the chorus of the title track off Blur's, Blur's third studio album, Park Life. In May of that year, 2.6 million people applied for tickets for their summer shows at Nebworth House in South England. To put that already staggering number into perspective, 
That is 5% of the entire British population. Those shows occurred on August 10th and the 11th, in front of a quarter of a million people between both nights, an English record that would stand for seven years. On August 24th, Oasis took the stage without Liam at London's Royal Festival Hall for their unplugged performance. Noel told the audience a sore throat caused Liam's absence, and thus sang lead vocals on 100% of the songs. While the claim of a sore throat may not have been a lie, it would be better to characterize that as true but misleading. Liam finally showed up to the venue only an hour before showtime, completely inebriated. He tried rehearsing with the band, an attempt Noel could only describe as, quote, fucking dreadful. While Noel actually did quite an admirable job, Liam used the performance as an opportunity to heckle his brother from the balcony seating with a beer and cigarette in hand. Less than two weeks later, Liam again created problems, this time at the MTV Video Music Awards at Radio City Music Hall in New York on September 4, 1996, where Oasis performed their most recent hit single, Champagne Supernova. The lengthiness of the epic power ballad allowed plenty of time for Liam to shoot himself in the band's collective foot, showcasing the scope of his boorish tendencies. He introduced the song telling the audience, quote, I hope you're having a good time, but I know you're having a shit time. He then gracefully switched up the lyric from, quote, in a champagne supernova in the sky to, quote, in a champagne supernova up your bum. Liam concluded the performance by pushing the microphone stand to the ground, spitting his beer on stage, and then tossing the remainder of his beer into the crowd. And less than two weeks after that, an argument between, between Liam and Noel prior to a gig in Charlotte, North Carolina, resulted in Noel temporarily quitting the band and inevitably forcing Oasis to cancel the remainder of their North American tour. Noel did rejoin the band shortly after, but the internal tensions in combination with their debaucherous exploits and their ubiquitous popularity left them in a precarious spot, which their record label and management company Ignition were very aware of. Thus, the powers that be rushed Oasis into the studio to record the songs that Noel had written while on vacation with Kate Moss and Johnny Depp in Mick Jagger's villa in the private Caribbean island of Moustique. The band began recording their follow-up album, Be Here Now, in October of 1996 at EMI's Abbey Road Studios in London. The early returns on the album didn't impress anyone, with Owen Morris, one of the album's producers, calling the first week, quote, fucking awful. Noel, re Noel reassured him that things would even out, but the central location of the recording became a hotbed of media press, a situation that Liam exacerbated with a cocaine-related arrest on November 9th. So to avoid the paparazzi's negative effect on the record, Oasis changed studio locations to Royal Ridge Farm in Surrey. Though the quality of the sessions surpassed the work they did at Abbey Road Studios, the presence of hard drugs marred the recording process. Morris said of the drug use in context of the album, quote, in the first week, someone tried to score an ounce of weed, but instead got an ounce of cocaine, which kind of summed it up. The album musically sounds like an attempt to combine the attitude-filled rock and roll vibes of Definitely Maybe with the anthemic choruses and epic standout tracks found on What's the Story Morning Glory. 
Noel's desire for this colossal sound culminated in excessive guitar layering and bloated song lengths. The 12-song album featured 71 minutes of music, almost 6 minutes per song, and that even includes the 2-minute final track of the album, which reprises the album's third-to-last song, All Around the World. Oasis released the highly anticipated Be Here Now, which Noel described as, quote, the sound of five men in the studio on coke not giving a fuck. On August 21st, 1997, Despite the album setting the record for the most units sold in the UK in its opening week with over 650,000 copies, the inadequacies of the album in comparison to their generation-defining first two records not only signaled the beginning of the end for the Mancunian rock stars, but also ended the cultural dominance of the Britpop movement. While the excitement surrounding the follow-up to Oasis' immortalized sophomore classic provided critics and listeners with rose-colored glasses, the early chart and critical success proved short-lived. The retrospective reviews found critics rescinding their early praise. For example, Pitchfork initially gave the album a 7.9 out of 10, but their retrospective review diminished that number to a meager 5.3. Rolling Stone originally labeled the record with a respectable 4 to 5 stars, but in 2004 changed the review to a mere 2.5 stars. Despite the initial unprecedented commercial success of the record, Be Here Now underperformed its two predecessors. And although the singles charted well in the UK singles charts, in the United States, none of the singles managed to appear on the Billboard Hot 100. They only achieved moderate success on the US rock charts with Do You Know What I Mean and Don't Go Away, peaking at number four and five respectively. Although the band would release four albums following Be Here Now, the band never replicated their Herculean buzz that surrounded their first three albums. Although each of their subsequent releases achieved significant commercial success in the UK, they never even approximated the commercial success of their predecessors. And in the United States, their appeal expired following their third album, with none of their final four studio records reaching gold status. The only matters that seemed to garner attention for Oasis involved the feud between between Liam and Noel. While the animosity between the brothers long preceded the downward trend of the band's popularity, the increase in quarrels between the two Gallaghers and the new millennium perhaps led to the group's ultimate demise. In 2000, while on tour supporting their fourth album, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, in Barcelona, Spain, drummer Alan White's arm injury caused the group to cancel their gig, leaving the group unstructured free time. Of course, Liam and Noel took to drinking, and Liam's drunk ass, well, at least hopefully, questioned the legitimacy of Noel's daughter, Anais. Noel was not pleased with the comment, and consequently punched his brother in the face, spat on his lip, and refused to play the rest of the tour. Apparently, Liam broke one of Noel's guitars in retaliation. In 2005, when discussing Liam, Noel told Spin Magazine that, quote, I've kind of learned that instead of arguing stuff out with him and ending up in a fight, I work on his psychology and he's completely freaked out by me now. He's actually frightened to death of me. In the year of 2009, right before the band broke up, three incidents occurred, each acting as aggressive hits to the nail in the coffin that would bury the existence of an active oasis. In April of that year, 
Noel told Q Magazine probably the most beautifully derisive roast of his brother, quote, He's the angriest man you'll ever meet. He's like a man with a fork in a world of soup. Then in August, the band canceled their performance at the last minute at V Festival in Essex due to Liam suffering from laryngitis. Noel attributed the cancellation to Liam being hungover. Upon Liam threatening legal action, Noel apologized. The apology did not salvage the fate of the band as, ru- as roughly one week later, on August 28, 2009, an argument ensued moments before the group's performance in Paris, during which Liam threw a plum against the wall, stormed out of the room, and returned with one of Noel's guitars and swung it at him, quote, like an axe. That's Noel's side of the story, obviously. The show was canceled. The tour was canceled, and Oasis called it quits, with Noel stating, quote, It is with some sadness and great relief. I quit Oasis tonight. People will write and say what they like, but I simply could not go on working with Liam a day longer. Noel has remained true to his word, and not only has the band not reunited since, but Liam and Noel haven't even spoken to each other in over 10 years. Despite the amount of oxygen that the band's debauchery and antics have sucked up, more than anything else, it's their clever, catchy, chaotic, and carefree music that should define them. Before I could determine the signature song of Oasis, I had to do a deep dive and devise an anthology of songs that adequately reflects the trajectory of the band's existence. In the podcast's first episode, I took the 10 most popular original Nirvana songs on Spotify to decipher the musical identity of the grunge icons. I took a similar approach with the Mancunian rock stars. However, since they possess a lengthier discography, the playlist I made followed suit. I chose their 17 songs that exceed 50 million plays on Spotify to determine the common themes of their music. After a thorough listen to that anthology, I concluded that unlike Nirvana, who generally possess a singular musical identity, Oasis employed two distinct styles that within that anthology they utilized almost equally. Casual listeners perhaps associate the band with the ballads that incorporate strings, acoustic guitars, anthemic choruses, and at times piano due to the frequency of hits of that nature. However, old school fans of the band that confidently claim that Definitely Maybe takes the crown as their greatest record would probably define their sound as gritty rock and roll with bluesy guitar solos. For me, though, it's the coexistence of those styles that characterizes their musical identity. I also noted that although Noel's presence as a lead singer periodically appears within their most recognizable tunes, Liam sings the vast majority of Oasis's discography. The endearing catchiness of his whiny voice, which unmistakably sports the British accent, adds personality to the tight instrumentation. And to that point, the British accent is to Britpop what the Southern accent is to country music. Thus, Liam's voice leads not only Oasis's signature sound, but the Britpop movement as a whole. Lyrically, many recognize Noel as a crafty wordsmith, with famed Beatles producer George Martin calling him, quote, the finest songwriter of his generation. Despite the praise for his songs, criticism exists with regards to the fundamental nonsense of his lyrics. 
Noel himself told Metallica drummer and huge Oasis fan Lars Ulrich on his BBC radio show It's Electric that he often doesn't even know what his lyrics are referring to. His apathy towards concrete narratives comes from how he listens to lyrics from his influences, telling Ulrich, quote, All my favorite songs of all time, I couldn't give a shit what the lyrics are. I couldn't give a flying fuck what any of them are singing about at all. It means nothing to me. They're just words that you sing to serve the melody that makes you feel good. That's it. I couldn't care less. I find that quote humorous, since it actually kinda shares a similar philosophy to Kurt Cobain's songwriting approach, despite the media's insistence that Oasis's success was born out of their sharp contrast to the grunge movement. But I digress. Although I probably would disagree with Sir George Martin, I do enjoy Noel's songwriting and how it works in tandem with his brother. What I mean is that, while concrete meanings tend to elude Oasis's material, I appreciate how Liam's brash timbre vocalizes the memorable sentiment and imagery of some of Noel's one-liners. Some examples of this include their tone-setting debut single, Supersonic, with the line, quote, You can have it all, but how much do you want it? As well as a line from their first number one hit, some might say, quote, Some might say they don't believe in heaven. Go and tell it to the man who lives in hell. And finally, the opening stanza from my favorite Oasis song, Cigarettes and Alcohol, quote, Is it my imagination, or have I finally found something worth living for? I was looking for some action, but all I found was cigarettes and alcohol. So upon reflection of this beautiful anthology, I concluded that while a 50-50 split would be unrealistic, Oasis's signature song should combine the elements of their stylistic dichotomy, so think strings, big choruses, maybe an acoustic guitar or piano, but with prominent bluesy guitar. Also, while I love Noel's voice, their signature song must feature the unique whine of Liam Gallagher. Lyrically, I feel the tune, anointed with the honor, doesn't necessarily need to have some deep, overarching meaning, but rather catchy syntax, which might blow the mind of a stoned college student. And finally, since for better or for worse, the band's first two albums own the legacy of Oasis, their signature song should be found on one of those two classics. I could have picked Stop Crying Your Heart Out, the fourth track from their 2002 album Heathen Chemistry, probably the most popular song not found on Definitely Maybe or What's the Story Morning Glory. To date, the song has 228 million plays on Spotify, and the video has over 135 million views on YouTube. The five-minute ballad in which Noel and Liam politely tell the subject of the tune to stop being a wimp, essentially, features all the elements that a casual Oasis listener would eat up. The song begins with a dark, repetitious chord played on piano, reminiscent of Bonnie Tyler's total eclipse of the heart. The song gradually incorporates strings, acoustic guitar, light percussion, electric guitar with with a clean tone before breaking into a big radio-friendly chorus. Stop Crying Your Heart Out charted in the top 10 in various European countries, including Ireland, Iceland, Italy, and of course, the UK. The single got no love from the US, but enjoyed success north of the border with a peak of number six on the Canadian pop charts. While I find the song catchy as hell and easy on the ears, the song feels too safe for me and doesn't contain any gritty guitar or infectiously silly lyrics. Also, in 2002, Oasis found themselves far beyond their glory years of the mid-90s, 
So despite its popularity and inclusion of many features central to Oasis's musical identity, upon a thorough audit, Stop Crying Your Heart Out shouldn't be allowed anywhere near the crown of signature song. I could have picked Live Forever, their their breakthrough U.S. hit. The song currently has just north of 200 million plays on Spotify and 41 million views on YouTube. Noel wrote the optimistic Britpop classic while working as a construction worker in 1991 after an on-the-job injury. Working in the storeroom as a result of the injury, the less strenuous position gave him more time to daydream and come up with songwriting ideas. One of the ideas, as previously mentioned, a response to the grunge movement, with Noel later reflecting on the song and Kurt Cobain, quote, It struck me that this fucker, an extremely talented guy, had everything I wanted. He was rich, he was famous, he was in the greatest rock and roll band of its time, and he's writing songs saying he hates himself and wants to die. My way of thinking was, well, I fucking love myself, and I'm going to live forever, man. Oasis released the song as a single, perhaps distastefully three months after Cobain's death. The song opens with a brief and subtle drum part before leading into Noel strumming whole note length chords on the acoustic guitar along with Liam's almost caricature-like vocal performance. It's beautiful. The song quickly transitions to a gritty pop rock tune which carries it to its one minute outro featuring a repetitious guitar riff that Noel sandwiches with bluesy guitar licks. Noel does some nonsensical but beautifully constructed sentences in the song. For example, in one line, Liam sings, quote, Lately, did you ever feel the pain in the morning rain as it soaks you to the bone? Does this line really make sense? Probably not. But does it at surface level sound profoundly insight, insightful? Most definitely. Overall, the song has so many elements that endear people to Oasis. Bonus points, by the way, for just how exaggerated Liam's British accent comes across in this tune. And frankly, besides the omission of strings and maybe not the most distinct chorus, the song does not lack any of the essential criteria needed for the signature song title. The only reason I am withholding Live Forever from those honors lends itself to just how abundant and key components of Oasis's identity the song I chose includes. Well folks, here it is, my first major hot cake of the episode. I know, I've been so well behaved, but all things must pass. Anyways, I could have chosen, but didn't, their crossover hit, Wonderwall, from What's the Story, Morning Glory. With nearly 1.6 billion plays on Spotify and 478 million views on YouTube, Wonderwall is undeniably not only Oasis's most popular song, but one of the most popular songs in modern music history. I'm going to read the list of countries for which this 90s classic reached the top 10. Australia, Austria, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Hungary, Iceland, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Scotland, the United States, Zimbabwe, and of course, the United Kingdom. I've heard this song probably one million times in my life, which is probably why I'm going to say something that I'll most likely regret. I don't think it's a good song. Before I get into why I don't think it possesses the parts necessary to garner the signature song title, I suppose I'll rant to back up my largely preposterous statement. Wonderwall basically finds itself as a pop folk song. The majority of the song can, consists of acoustic guitar strings and surprisingly funky drums. Those funky drums remain the only thing I like about this song, and if percussion is the best thing about a folk song, what does that tell you about the song? 
And although I unapologetically enjoy Liam's whiny voice, there does have to be an upper limit to when it becomes plainly irritating. I'm not sure where you can locate that line in the sand, but wherever it is, Wonderwall passes it and then some. And while I'm all for Noel's sub-poetic songwriting, the basic nature of the lyrics ranks amongst his worst within Oasis's golden era. I'm going to try to read some of the lines without cringing. Here's one from the pre-chorus. Quote, And all the roads we have to walk are winding, and all the lights that lead us there are blinding. And the chorus is not getting much better with the corny, quote, Maybe you're going to be the one that saves me, and after all, you're my Wonderwall. Okay, I do appreciate the reference to George Harrison's debut studio album, Wonderwall Music. Anyways, since this nostalgic jewel does not contain the witty lyricism, nor any semblance of their gritty rock and roll foundation, although I can concede that it may serve as the poster child of the Britpop movement, I cannot in good faith honor this as Oasis's signature song. I could have picked Don't Look Back in Anger, their John Lennon-esque song that follows Wonderwall and Watch the Story Morning Glory. With over 660 million plays on Spotify and 372 million views on YouTube, besides obviously the previously mentioned tune, this, pian this piano rock classic is perhaps their most popular song. Their second and final tune to chart on the Billboard Hot 100, Don't Look Back in Anger, became a top 10 hit in nine different countries. One of their most critically acclaimed and beloved tunes, readers of the British music publication Q Magazine ranked it 20th on their list of the greatest songs of all time. This song remains central to the heart of Manchester's identity. Following the tragic bombing at the Manchester Arena that killed 22 people on May 22, 2017, three days later a crowd of 400 Mancunians gathered in St. Anne's Square for a moment of silence to honor those that were murdered. Following the moment of silence, a woman started singing Don't Look Back in Anger, to which the entire crowd quickly joined. Watching this clip, I got goosebumps and choked up at the same time. Although Noel communicated that the tune does contain a concrete theme, which urges listeners to refrain from looking back at regrets with contempt, he also insists that he wrote the song while on substances and doesn't get many of the references. Some of those lyrics are pure Noel gold, like the opening of the pre-chorus, quote, So I start a revolution from my bed, cause you said the brains I had went to my head. Or in the second verse, quote, please don't put your life in the hands of a rock and roll band who'll throw it all away. Musically, the song opens with a piano riff eerily similar to John Lennon's Imagine, before diving into the somewhat gritty pop rock nucleus of the tune that includes, in my opinion, the most anthemic chorus of their discography. Throughout the song, Noel showcases his chops with some rather tasty guitar licks. Also, shout out to drummer Alan White, the unsung hero of Oasis's sophomore Spectacular, for that iconic drum fill leading into the final chorus, a fill, with, a fill which might just be the most recognizable in popular history music, aside from that one in Phil Collins's In the Air Tonight. Many people consider Don't Look Back in Anger the band's best song, and I'm not even going to disagree with that. The song has just about everything an Oasis signature song could possibly conjure up. The one thing separating this tune from the crown? Liam's vocals, or lack thereof. Well, folks, we made it. We will now crown the podcast's second signature song. Of all the Oasis classics, for me, the signature song of the Mancunian legends has to be their epic seven-and-a-half-minute power ballad, Champagne Supernova.
despite the band releasing the song as a single in only a handful of countries, with over 316 million plays on Spotify and 108 million views on YouTube, Champagne Supernova's status within the catalog remains second to none. Beyond the love for the song that fans of the band continue to strongly maintain, critics hold it in equal esteem, with publications The Guardian and Uproxx ranking it as the single greatest Oasis song ever. But this episode isn't naming their best song, it's choosing their signature song. So why does Champagne Supernova deserve the title? Let's start with the songwriting, probably the most emblematic example of Noel's lyricism. Certain lyrics throughout the masterpiece sound as poetic as any pop song in all the 20th century with lines such as, quote, how many special people change, how many lives are living strange, as well as, quote, wake up the dawn and ask her why a dreamer dreams she never dies. However, in classic Noel fashion, he said the song's overall meaning depends on his moods. He also said that when he sings the song live, quote, I often find myself drifting off enjoying the song and thinking, what fucking does it mean? Vocally, Liam puts on one of his best vocal performances, with his wine hitting just right and his British accent on point, especially on the word champagne in the choruses and the word faster in the pre-choruses. But beyond those silly little things I find endearing, his timbre and power shine throughout. Musically, the song begins a slow ballad, featuring acoustic guitar, the harmonium, and Liam's vocals before transitioning into a psychedelic pop song until around the two-minute mark where Noel's gritty electric guitar sets the tone for the rest of the song, which features a huge chorus and a gargantuan bridge. The rest of the song jumps around between different levels of psychedelic rock, culminating in an explosive one-minute jam featuring a prominent rock and roll guitar solo by Noel with Liam's anthemic vocals in the background, making the tune sound like a B-side from Sgt. Pepper. Champagne Supernova ends almost as soft as it began, with Liam repeating the anomalous line most synonymous with the song, quote, Where were you while we were getting high? A line so fitting given the diverse textures and colors found throughout its seven and a half minutes. A successor to Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, November Rain by Guns N' Roses, Pink Floyd's Time, and Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, Champagne Supernova remains a key member in the lineage of epic rock classics. But above all else, through the depth of Noel's vintage, meaningless yet pretty sounding lyrics, Liam's soothing vocals with a subtle whine, and the exploration of both sides of their musical identity, Champagne Supernova conveys the essence of Oasis. Therefore, claiming that the album closer of their most enduring success is Oasis's signature song, is a Champagne Supernova in the sky I'm willing to die on. Unlike my previous guests that I've known for years, I'm joined by a friend of a friend, well, a friend of friends, that I've only had the pleasure of engaging in a few conversations with, but of course they were about rock music, and I don't think either of us would have had it any other way. He's a senior manager of data analytics at a tech company, but of more interest to me, he's a guitarist, songwriter, and former bassist of the Milwaukee-based punk rock legends the Orange Sodas. In his free time, you can find him kayaking and hiking with his wife, Kaylee, but today you can find him here. Please welcome to the podcast, Matt Lule. 
Ah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. I'm I'm super excited. We you know we we uh, we were jamming before and talking about Oasis, so I am super super pumped. Um, but and I was thinking about when you know when when you were on your way, I was thinking about the first time the first conversation we had, and I think it was back in 2021. You remember we were talking about Stadium Arcadium? That's right. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to get your uh, your, your opinion about uh, the theme from my second episode, One Hot Minute. Um, are you familiar with that album at all? So, so my Chili Peppers experience is primarily in their later albums. I, I really, really love Stadium Arcadium. That that album just got me through college, basically. So, um, I do I, I do like a little bit of their earlier punk stuff, but tend to navigate more towards the, that, the, the more stuff. melodic uh, type Chili Peppers songs. Got it. Gotcha. Awesome. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, so, what kind of music do you listen to uh, most currently? Yeah, so I'm I'm a bit all over the place <clears throat> right now with with music, but I'm primarily listening to a lot of uh, indie alternative stuff, some some roots rock. Um, been listening to a lot of Lucas Nelson and Promise of the Real and KG Elephant, Houndmouth, uh, Shaky Graves, those types of guys. It's like I only recognize half of those names, <laughs> so uh, you're gonna have to text me after this and be like, "Dub, check out these bands," because I think they'd be right up your alley for sure. Um, but what kind of music were you spoon fed as a child? I'm always I'm always interested to hear what people say for this. Yeah, so um, my parents were kind of children of the '60s and '70s, so I got a lot of that the popular music from that era. So a lot of Motown, um, a lot of Rolling Stones, Beatles, um, Fleetwood Mac, those types of things. My dad was also a big Frank Sinatra fan, and uh, he always played his reprise album on road trips, and so. Um, I, I definitely am a, a big fan of of all of those types of all of those types of bands and groups. The uh, did you ever listen to um, like the Kinks or like were... yeah you know the the, the Kinks the Hollies mm-hmm. like all all that sort of genre that was right right in it yeah yeah because uh, you know I know obviously we're gonna get into Oasis quite a bit today but I remember like you know when I was reading about them like their influences your influences were like the Beatles and like the Kinks and a lot of those like you know. English rock bands of the 60s and 70s and such. So I was just like curious if that was some stuff that you like grew up with and maybe that like fed into your ultimate interest in the band. I mean, that's that's getting pretty deep, but now that you mention <laughs> it, there's there's probably something to that. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, but when I uh, know you were telling me a little bit this a little bit about this before we started to record, but uh, when did you start to discover music on your own? Yeah, I, I want to say it was probably sometime in middle school, you know, sixth, seventh grade, probably in that range um, was when I was really starting to listen to my own music. That was, uh, you know, starting to watch MTV and all the music videos that were coming across there. And um, AOL Sessions was doing their thing during that time. And you know, it was really discovering kind of live music heading into high school. And that's kind of where it blossomed for me. And what kind of music was that that you were getting into when you were discovering it uh, on your own? Yeah, I think it was it was a uh, a lot of kind of the early '90s popular music. You kind of think of the the alt rock stuff, the grunge stuff, Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Third Eye Blind and the Jim Blossoms, and uh, those types of bands. But uh, there was also some hip hop mixed in there. Um, so I was I was listening to some Project Pat and Three Six Mafia and those types of guys too. So it was it was a bit eclectic. Yeah, I love that. That's a that's a great myth. That's a great mix and a very nostalgic mix for me. <laughs> Um, and you know, we were talking about, uh, earlier about me, like the first, 
uh, songs that I remember hearing on the radio that I can trace back, you know, on the timeline as like the earliest songs that I remember. And Third Eye Blind definitely like I remember what was it ninety seven when their big album came out I think I, I think so they had yeah. two they had two albums that came out Blue and their self titled yeah. and those those two were pretty pretty big albums for them they they blew up because I, I remember I remember hearing Jumper and Semi Charm Life like when I was four years old um and so the Third Eye Blind they're uh, they're awesome <laughs> um but it's not a Third Eye Blind episode. Yeah, maybe although, next although time. maybe maybe down the road. Yeah, <laughs> we could definitely do one on that. Yeah. Um, for sure. So my first question: uh, Blur or Oasis? Uh, definitely Oasis. Um, I I can't say I'm a huge Blur fan. I know they had a they probably still do have a big rift between those two bands, and it's kind of an epic uh, history behind those two. You kind of have like the Manchester guys that are blue collar, grew up lower middle class in the north versus like blur which i think they were mostly kind of from the london area and college educated came from more affluent families so i think they they had a big riff but i'm definitely the oasis guy yeah um it's it's funny i didn't even know that like until you know, i'm one of my best friends he's a big a big fan of gorillas mm. and i had no idea that it was this like the the, the gorillas is the front man for blur yeah, yeah um but no i i definitely gave blur quite a bit of listening like in preparation for this episode and uh blur i think is a great band but i can safely say that i'm with you i think oasis is the uh is is the better band um yeah i think i think the world would agree with you in terms of (laughs) uh album sales and those types of things just in terms of popular uh what was most popular but yeah definitely still a lot of respect for blur for sure for sure um anyway so when did you first hear of oasis i mean i i I think i had heard some of their music probably in high school. They're more popular songs, Wonderwall and Don't Look Back in Anger and those types of things. But I can't say I was ever really a big fan. Um, my sophomore year in college, I studied abroad in Birmingham, England for a year. And that's, uh, they're ubiquitous over there, obviously. And um, I, I came to really have a, a fond fondness for that band over time. And uh, you know, listen to a lot of their, their live stuff while I was studying and, and things like that over there. And they're obviously huge and they were huge in the flats, you know, the, the local guys listening to Oasis and all over the pub scene there as well. So, um, that's really where it kind of started for me and blossomed from there. And you were, you were saying that, um, like, don't look back in anger is like the British equivalent of like, don't stop believing or like <laughs> just a song that everyone knows all the words, wherever you go. It, it is an absolute anthem in England, for sure. Um, I, I think that song has taken on a life of its own. And uh, it's sort of a song about defiance and, and building up resolve. And, and so I think it's sort of defined uh, uh, almost a nation over there in terms of resilience. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, especially like, you know, in recent years, there's been obviously a lot of turmoil um, over there in a lot of different areas. Um, so probably, the, I guess, I, to your point that, you know, that that resilience don't look back in anger represents well mm-hmm. um but beyond that and don't look back in anger i was thinking about that that might be my favorite oasis song i think for me it's it's either uh, don't look back in anger or cigarettes and alcohol mm-hmm. that song's hilarious yeah <laughs> absolutely it's a great yeah. song and it, it probably defines the ethos of that band in the early days <laughs> yeah. a little bit and their swagger oh yeah um but anyway, so uh, beyond, you know, Don't Look Back in Anger, what are some of your favorite Oasis songs? Uh, I would say my favorite Oasis song is probably Listen Up. 
Um, that was off their compilation album of B-sides, funny enough. Um, and so I, I think that song is just fantastic. But uh, beyond that, Doubling Back in Anger is up there. Um, uh, I still really love Wonderwall. I know it's it's sort of <laughs> taken on uh, a bit of a an alternative, um, you know, popular meaning these days. But uh, I think it's a great song. Supersonic off their first album is is absolutely incredible. Yeah. And um, it, there's a few other ones. I would say whatever. Mar- Married with Children mm-hmm. are also fantastic songs. That's a great closer. I think because that's the closer from Definitely Maybe. I, be- yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Um, and that's great because that kind of leads into what would. You know, have, because they had like, quite a few acoustic songs down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Wonderwall being the most successful. And uh, my apologies for in, in the monologue. I definitely trashed uh, Wonderwall quite a bit. <laughs> and and I will say it's only probably because I've heard that song ten million times. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, but and so my apologies about that. Um, and uh, here's this is this is always a great question because you are. I mean, you're a huge Oasis fan. Um, so this is probably a question that you've thought about quite a bit in your life, but what is the better album or what do you prefer? Definitely maybe, or what's the story morning glory? That's a great question. Um, I, I would say those two albums back to back in terms of quality start to finish are among the best consecutive two album, uh, productions of just about anybody. Um, if I had to choose one, I would say probably their debut definitely maybe I think is is personally my favorite even though I think it had a little less commercial success um I think that album is a little more raw a little more brash and uh if you kind of look up uh the recording and how they went into the studio to make that album like you know Noel wasn't using any effects pedals or anything like that he was literally just running you know some inexpensive guitars through a Marshall cab or something and maxing out the gain and um i think that really like the attitude of that band like comes across in that album really well it's sort of unrefined it's like a wall of sound and um i think it just has that album just has swagger and attitude oozing out of it um definitely maybe uh obviously at the top i mean what's the story morning glory has all the hits like Mm -hmm. some of the big bigger hits um with don't look back in anger and wonderwall and those types of things um, but I feel like it was a little more of a ballad type album, you know, like bigger choruses, bigger lead ups to choruses. And um, perhaps the songwriting was a little bit more refined on that album as well. But I don't think it quite had the punch mm-hmm. that definitely maybe had. Yeah, no, definitely. Like to your point, definitely maybe like you said, like not really using, you know, effects and that 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 brash attitude um, really lends itself to that like working class ethos. I think that they were, you know, that they beautifully in, in a beautiful manner became the poster children for you know yeah you're absolutely right i think that's a major reason why it resonated so much uh with with england and abroad yeah and and i thought a lot about this like do i prefer definitely maybe or what's the story morning glory and i can't like have the cop out and say i like them equally <laughs> but there's things about both albums that are that you know i could go either way but i think overall like you know if, if i'm you know uh uh, life or death type situation. I got to say, what's the story? Morning glory, and I'm not even saying that to be contrarian because I was <laughs> thinking a lot about it. Because I think at the same, initially I had your opinion. I was like, well, definitely maybe has the more brash rock and roll stuff, like really embodying like the Kinks and like the early Beatles and stuff like that. 
But kind of like upon reflection and really like a thorough listen to it, you do have those ballads. You have like Don't Look Back in Anger and Wonderwall and Champagne Supernova and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But then you also do have just like some gritty rock songs. Mm-hmm. Like some might say in like the title. I love the title track, by the way. I wasn't even really familiar with that song before preparation for this this episode. That's a great song. Yeah, that's a hard hitter, yeah. And there's also, I don't know if you noticed, there's a there's a really cool like Beatles reference in there. Oh, I didn't know that. There's a line it's like in it you know the song Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles. It's the last song off of uh, Revolver. Yeah. Like there's a line like Tomorrow Never Knows what it knows today or something like that. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that's a great song. I'm sorry." No, no, it's great. Yeah. Um but so yeah, gonna give like a slight edge to what's the story morning glory but then i like i said like you said i just i love the attitude and the swagger of definitely maybe um but i know i didn't give a ton of listens to their 21st century albums right anything after be here now um but uh, what do you think of their um 21st century albums yeah so um i i don't think they're as of the quality, certainly, as what was produced before 2000. Um, you know, you have, but you still have some great songs. I think, in my opinion, you know, when you when you think about, like, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants and, like, Heathen Chemistry and some of those other more obscure Oasis albums that still had big success in England, but mm-hmm. didn't really have the widespread worldwide success here. There's one or two songs in each of those albums that are still amazing. But I think the quality, there's a lot of skip over songs, in my opinion. And that's coming from a big Oasis fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those those albums for me are hard to go start to finish and be like, this is a really high quality album. Yeah. Um, I do think there is a bit more of a refined uh, approach to some of those albums, just in terms of like the, the way some of those songs came across and, um, you know, the solos. There was some more experimentation with effects and stuff that they were doing in the studio, I think. Um you know, with songs like Gas Panic and you, Do You Know What I Mean? Like, really cool, like, vibey songs um, that they weren't really doing that type of stuff early on where it's just kind of in-your-face, like, over, overdriven guitar sort of thing. Mm-hmm. For sure, you know, and and for sure. And because I listened to all the albums, I couldn't make it through, what was it, Dig Out Your Soul? Is that their, their last album? Yeah. I, I couldn't make it through that. that I, I, I couldn't do it. I tried, but... Yeah, it, I, I agree. I, I think... There's just a lot of skip over material mm-hmm. there. Um, I think waiting, waiting for the rapture is on that album though, and that's that's still like one of my favorite Oasis songs. That's on, on, on Dig Out. Dig I, out I think soul. it's on Dig Out Your Soul, and that's just a fantastic song. It, that's just kind of more Noel doing what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and he plays some amazing acoustic renditions of that, and and some of the live stuff I've seen online. Um, and I, I saw Oasis I think in 2008 in Minneapolis the year before they split up, which. I thank my lucky stars I was able to do that. Uh, cause who knows if anybody will get that chance again. Right. But, um, I, I you know, that they were touring, I think, for that album at the time. And um, kind of a mediocre album, but definitely still some good tunes on it. So what, what was this, the name of the song that you mentioned that's really good on the Waiting for the Rapture? I think, I think it's said? Waiting for the Rapture. I'll, I'll definitely have to check that out. But um, I would say, like, you know, listening through, I like Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, like, a solid album, right? Um... And what was the 2005 album? Do you remember the name? Was that the Heathen Chemistry? No, that was 2002. I think it was like something about the truth. Oh, um... Do you... I can look that up. Yeah, Um, there was Standing on the Shoulder of Heathen Chemistry. Uh, Was it like Don't Don't Give Up the Truth or something? Something like that. Um, Let's see. Um, 
Don't believe the truth. Don't believe the truth. Don't believe yeah. the truth. Um, there was like definitely some songs on that that I really enjoyed, um, and I think like critically that of their 21st century albums or really anything after what's the story morning glory i think that's their most acclaimed album um that has like lila on it yeah it has the importance of being idol i think too which was was a big hit even though people argue like he ripped off kind of the the intro to that which i think is well that's i mean that's par for the course with Noel. yeah there's there's quite a bit of borrowing going on in terms of uh that songwriting and stuff right well even like going back to don't look back in anger like he's unapologetically and he doesn't try to hide it's like yeah i I took the i i took the riff from imagine there's another uh john lennon song i can't remember the name but like that he took it from um but i would say the one album that i listened to that i really did enjoy i liked heathen chemistry i thought that was that's a pretty good album yeah for sure no definitely definitely some good tracks on it It, Um, yeah and, and there's one song, I think, Little by Little on Heathen Chemistry, which reminds me so much of Pink Floyd. Yeah, it's a great song. And that's actually one that, that still kind of has those hard-driving guitar tracks on it, you know? Um, and it's and it's a bit of an anthem. So I, I do... that. That's a very popular song in England and even was when I was, was over there. So it's, it's well-known. Um, another song that was on Heathen Chemistry that I was really uh, surprised that it was a super popular like on you know on the streaming you know platforms was um uh stop crying your heart out yep oh, how, how, how do you feel about that song because I, I have mixed feelings on that it's a bit of a ballad right kind of a slow slow null kind of song i think it's good um i songbird is also on that album too mm-hmm. i think which is if i remember correctly is one of the rare liam written songs really <laughs> um and i so he he did write a little bit he did. I, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but I mean, the vast majority of their songs were written by Noel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think at that time, Liam was starting to build some songwriting chops, which carried over into his solo career, uh, solo career and with BDI later on when Noel split off into the High Flying Birds. Have you listened to any of Liam's um, solo stuff? Um, I have a little bit. Um, some of it's pretty good. Like, I think he has a couple of really good songs that he's written once, I think is one of his more popular ones. Um, I initially followed, I was definitely a bigger Noel fan and like every mm-hmm. Oasis fan will have like their preferred brother. Yeah. Um, but I was definitely on the Noel bandwagon. Um, so I followed him when he went solo more closely and his first solo album was amazing. After that, it's, I think kind of went downhill in my opinion. Yeah. Um, Although I think the quality of the songwriting perhaps was a little bit more coherent than his early Oasis days. <laughs> <laughs> Again, not saying too much. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> um, um, and, I, and I actually, I had skipped this question, um, so I want to go back to it. But do you think that Be Here Now was a good follow-up to uh, What's the Story Morning Glory? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it has the same start to finish quality as the previous two albums you know definitely maybe in what's the story um i do think it i do think it's a good album that's actually one that i can listen straight through and and be a fan and not be like i need to skip this song or the this few songs um so i I think there's it's a in my opinion it's a quality album like so what do you think um i i like it i definitely like it um but i i I think that after, you know, What's a Story, Morning Glory, which was, and we talked about this as one of the, not only one of the most successful, not only Oasis's most successful album, but one of the most successful albums of all time. Like, I think it sold, you know, 22 million copies worldwide. I mean, insanely popular. And I think really anything other than a masterpiece um, 
you know, would, would have probably fallen short. Um, and I think, like, initially, it's really interesting because initially the reviews for that album were unbelievable, but then, like, retrospectively, um, they weren't, you know, they weren't quite as well-liked. Um, and I think there's, like, a certain colossal element to the album. Like, it just sounds very big. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, like, it comes at the expense of, like, their, I guess, artistic uh, chops, if you will. Um, but there's still, like, a, a couple songs in them. I think Stand By Me... I really like that, and um, obviously the the debut the debut track. What's what's the name of that? Uh, do you know? What do you know I what mean? I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's so a great it's, song. I I think it's a good album. Um, is it a good follow up to What's the Story Morning Glory? I think if What's the Story Morning Glory was half as successful, you know, and sold eleven million copies instead of twenty two million, maybe it's a decent follow up. But yeah. just the magnitude of the predecessor, to me, it's a little bit sub subpar. Yeah, I I think that's a fair assessment. Um, like you mentioned, I think there's some big songs on that album. Like the the way they let off with, do you know what I mean? Is that's a big sort of arena type song, and I think it that song hits pretty pretty good for me. There's there's a couple of Noel uh, tracks sung by Noel on that album, if I'm remembering correctly. Magic Pie is really kind of a cool, and it's a departure. I think they're like I mentioned earlier. I think they were starting to experiment a little bit after their first two um, albums, and so I think there's there's just some different types of of music being produced by them when, when they got there. Um, some of it works, some of it doesn't, but I, I still think it's a quality album. Yeah. And I think that I read that, like, in order to, to give it that, like, gargantuan sound, I think, like, Noel, like, like did, like, you know, 10 guitar tracks. Like, he, <laughs> he overdubbed it, like, 10 times, like, something crazy like that. He's he's famous for, um, I know even in their first album, he was trying to overdub guitars, like, way over the top and he had like the producer had to kind of rein him in uh, <laughs> like like even on supersonic which is i mean there's so much guitar like lead and rhythm guitar in that song and to think that he had to be restrained to bring that back like i can only imagine what those original demos sounded like but um yeah that song for sure no yeah no supersonic i that, uh, that's great and now i think it, it's it's so poetic that 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 supersonic was their first single yeah, because that like introduced the world to them, and it, that I think more than any song in their discography, that song is just so full of attitude. Absolutely, it's yeah. I, I think that song is amazing. It's probably one of my top five, and I think it just has has like really cool guitar work. Like the layering of guitars, the mm-hmm. final product of that was really cool. Um, the the story I was reading something about that song because like you said, it was their first single, um, and what a cool song to to release first, right? But um, I I think uh, they. I think most of them were unemployed going into their first rec- record deal in creating definitely maybe. And so they, they had like no money for, for gear. And so he actually was lent a Gibson Les Paul by Johnny Marr from the Smiths uh, to record a, a big chunk of those songs. Cause he was playing, you know, like a beat up now, Epiphone Riviera or something. Now did, time. did Noel um, like know Johnny Marr from his, um, uh, from his like uh, roadie days, because Noel was a roadie, right? He was. I don't. Was it the Stone Roses or something? Like, I don't remember no, the it, name of the band that he was a roadie for. But he was. He was for a couple of years because Liam had the band started, mm-hmm. and Noel didn't join the band until I think a couple of years into it, and he brought all the songs basically. Yeah. Well, I think the the agreement was okay. I'll join your band, but uh, I'm going to be the lead guitarist, <laughs> and I'm going to be the primary songwriter. Right. And they're like, and they're like. All right, <laughs> I guess 
we'll do that. Yeah. Um, because I know like his roadie days, like that's where they got the name of the band Oasis from was like his roadie days because do you know this story? No, I don't actually. So like, no, I don't remember the name of the band that Noel was um, a roadie for, but um, they, uh, you know, they, the band that he was a roadie for performed at some venue um, and the name of the venue had the word Oasis in it. And it was like obviously a big deal for Noel that he's, you know, being a roadie with this like, you know, this well-known band or whatever. So um, a promotional poster from that gig, he hung up in his room now. You know, they were, they, like you said, they grew up working class, didn't have a lot of money. So Liam and Noel shared a room and Liam saw the poster and like thought the name Oasis was like the coolest thing. I I did, never heard that story before. It's really cool. Yeah, you know, it's it's no, it's it's uh very cool. Um, I I concur. Um, I, yeah, I had it's it's funny you mentioned that. I had read somewhere that they they got their start basically in a talent competition, and so they it was a local Manchester talent like you know uh, battle of the bands basically what we know now. But they they won that competition and apparently came out of it with a six record deal. Or something like that. It's well, a crazy story. I think the story was they played um, they played a show in I think Glasgow or so, somewhere in Scotland, and I think it was Glasgow. They were opening for some band, um, and there was like they were playing at some pub or whatever, some bar, and there was like six people in the audience. <laughs> One of the people in the audience, I think his name was Alan McGee, oh, okay. who was the founder and CEO of Creation Records, and right. was like blown away, and then and then signed. Him. Signed. I him. think I think that's the story. Um, but I'm curious. I'm sure there's probably something with the talent. With the talent, I'm not too familiar, so I'll have to look into that. Um, but the next question I have for you, and, and you were talking about like when you were studying in Birmingham and just like how huge they were and how u- ubiquitous they were. Um, why do you think that they got so big in England? I. It's a great question. Um, I think if you were to ask Oasis fans that question, you get a variety of answers. Um, I think. I think for me, when I think about why why they were so big, you know, England has this r- super rich history in terms of like guitar driven rock and roll bands, and I think, uh, and I think Oasis is in the spirit of that, like continuing the spirit of you know the Rolling Stones and the Who and uh, Led Zeppelin and all those guys. Obviously, it's it's a bit more of a, a poppy version of some of those bands, but I think it's the same sort of energy and same sort of uh, approach um and so i I also think around that time you know like there was some music out there that was kind of dark themed like grunge music that was becoming really popular think of like the lyrics to a lot of nirvana songs are not not very uh uh not very happy right um not not the most uplifting not the most uplifting exactly and I, i think um you know when you listen to oasis's early albums like a lot of it's just like very very happy and very upbeat and it sort of puts you in a good mood and like even even some of those songs like live forever i think live forever itself was written as sort of a counter to a lot of that the dark themed lyrically lyrically based music that was out there at the time and i think that resonated probably um but you know beyond that there's a lot that makes them unique and blows them up but um i think that's that's probably at the heart of it i love that that i love that and i think um 
the live forever that was like in response uh like nirvana one of their b-sides or whatever was now the song was written ironically but like if you're not if you don't really know cobain as a songwriter you kind of will miss that and they were so big where like a lot of people didn't have the luxury of really knowing you know cobain's personality so like if a casual listener hears a, hears like a, a dark song they're going to take that at face value and i think uh noel noel did that with um the song it was uh, called "I Hate Myself When I Want to Die," because <laughs> Noel was like, "You're you're so rich. You're the most successful songwriter in the world. You're the biggest band of your generation, and this is the crap that you're writing." Right. Um. So that was that was like like Live Forever's response, and it's interesting because you and I, you know, we love both bands. Right. You know? Yeah. Exactly. But I I see Noel's point of view. Right. You know. Um. But uh. Anyways. So and what about I mean that you probably just uh answered this with in your previous uh response but what do you think about oasis makes them unique yeah another another great great question um i think a lot of it boils down to the dynamic between liam and noel Uh, i think that's pretty rare (laughs) uh i would say that's pretty rare in music not having brothers that are feuding but at that level i think is something pretty pretty wild um i do think liam has like an iconic rock voice especially early on like his vocals on slide away like i i think is one of the most amazing pieces of vocal work i've ever heard um and so i he has such an iconic rock and roll voice and it you combine that with like his attitude and swagger as a front man and most iconic bands have a front man that that you know is remembered for being kind of having an attitude and um having a a certain identity that's unique and certainly he did still does um i think you combine that with noel and i don't think most people are going to say like noel's a guitar god or anything like um he's not going to be like remembered like slash was on or or frusciante or mike mccready or any of those guys that are gods but like he had a knack for just writing like amazing melodies and whether or not the lyrics are all coherent in those songs like those those songs are catchy as hell and absolutely i think you combine those two things that you have you have something that's really unique and special in oasis yeah and it's interesting because like like you said and by the way i appreciate the pearl jam shout out <laughs> i don't i don't think mike mccready gets enough love no, but that's he, a conversation one of my faves day. for sure oh he's he's awesome but i totally agree with you like he's not for he's not mccready or tom morello or any of those 90s gods but he he, he can hold his own absolutely and some of those some of those like bluesy licks and like like you were talking about it's supersonic i love that guitar solo yep um so he's he really i mean he's a he's not an amazing songwriter but he's a great songwriter he's not an amazing guitarist but he's a great and i think that's what make that's part of what makes oasis is great i i uh, i agree with that um and now let's get to the point where hopefully you or maybe hopefully not you yell at me because so we'll get into my my choice for signature song before uh, you critique that or give me your opinion. How would you define a signature song? Ooh, um, I, you know, with Oasis, there there's just such a quantity of songs and quantity of good songs, like even including like their B sides, what they consider mm-hmm. B sides. Um, but I think for me, a signature song is probably something that captures like the spirit of the band and like what they were all about. And, and kind of the way they were defined and thought about in their own time when they were when they were big um, so I think that's it's something that sort of captures our energy and ethos and spirit is probably how I would define a, a 
signature song. Man, I love that definition. I'm going to have to completely change my entire <laughs> podcast now. I love that definition. So what would you say? So with that definition that you just gave me, what do you say is Oasis' signature song? I am going to go... It's hard to pick one. I, I There's probably a handful that I think you could legitimately make a, a solid argument for. Um, I'm going to go with Supersonic as, okay. their, as their signature yeah. song. When, when you were giving me the definition, I was like, he's, he's going to say Supersonic. <laughs> I, I was thinking it was between that and probably Don't Look Back in Anger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Supersonic sort of captures the energy of their first album. And I think like the peak of Oasis really, really well. Um, and so, yeah, I'm going to stick with Supersonic. Okay, I love I, I, I love that. Um, I think, you know, I think I don't I don't think there's a song that, ca- I agree with you, I don't think there's a song that captures their ethos like Supersonic. That, and not even the entire song with that one line, you can have it all, but how much do you want it? Yep. Like, that doesn't get more Oasis than that. It just hits, right? Yeah, it, it for sure. Um, okay, so now it's time. Tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, what do you think of my selection of Champagne Supernova as their signature song? So I, I hate to do this because this is your podcast, <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm going to respectfully disagree uh, w- with that pick, um, primarily for the, the way I define, mm-hmm. I just define a signature song. I think yeah. for, for me, Champagne Supernova doesn't, doesn't really fit that definition very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was, you know, it's a much more melodic song. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't I don't when I listen to Champagne Supernova I don't like there's no I don't brashness get, there I don't get the spirit of Oasis yeah in that song I know it's super popular and mm-hmm. super widespread but yeah I'll, I'll disagree with that one okay yeah so I I will defend <laughs> my choice a little bit so and I real I do think that it captures their ethos in the sense of like if you look at Noel from like a song we were talking about this earlier that like Noel. Um, doesn't necessarily there's not a, necessarily an overarching meaning to his songs but he always kind of he, he writes very crafty sentences and mm-hmm. catchy sentences that would lead you to believe that maybe there is an overarching meaning but there isn't <laughs> right I mean I think that like Champagne Supernova is like a perfect example of that like there's some really interesting lines in that song but the song's just about getting high yeah I, I don't even know what it's what it's like getting high on but it's just about getting high yep um, and so, like, I feel like it captures that side of their ethos or, like, that side for that particular era. And, like, for me, why it's a signature song is that if you look at all of their big hits, all the different elements that you have, like, it kind of combines that gritty guitar, like, the gritty guitar, um, uh, you know, the, the gritty guitar licks that uh, Noel plays. And you've got that big chorus that, you know, we were talking about earlier. Um, and it's got the silly lyrics. So just for me, I think it, it kind of has it all. But I think it just goes back to however you define a signature song. Yeah, for sure. So I'm I am comfortable and content with your <laughs> choice. I'm more content with mine, but it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I, I totally understand that. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And uh, the last question: Do you think Oasis will ever get back together? Do you think I will ever have a chance to see Oasis live? I hope for your sake they do, because um, I it was a, a highlight of my life honestly you know just seeing always because mm-hmm. considering how big of a fan i was and still am to see those guys together um i've seen i've seen noel with his high flying birds before and it's just not the same no. you know even though he's singing his songs uh that he wrote with oasis it just doesn't it, it doesn't hit the same um to answer your question i do think they will get back together um you know those guys aren't getting any younger i think 
in a way, age has a way of kind of mellowing people out. I don't know if it'll have the same impact on Noel and Liam. Um, but, you know, if you if you kind of read between the lines, like Liam seems pretty open to a reunion. Um, it's Noel that's kind of the hang up. And so we'll see if he comes around. I think they're both of their solo careers and the bands that they started after Oasis have kind of started to fade pretty heavy. You know, High Flying Birds are okay, but they're not really making great music anymore. BDI uh, had a f- flash in the pan moment. Um, but I could totally see them getting back together for a reunion tour and just doing like Wembley Stadium and maybe going back to Nebworth, recreate what they did in 96, which would be amazing. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. I think at some point, I think realistically, the money is just going to be too great of an offer for them to turn down, because you know if they're not get, they're probably not getting the royalties that they used to get from their stuff, um, and you know their live performances aren't probably gaining the same traction. So mm-hmm. I think at some point the money is going to uh, be be too much, and uh, you know they're, they're brothers, and they haven't talked in so long. They, first, they gotta gotta get, get them in a room without any alcohol, without any blunt <laughs> objects. <laughs> And hopefully they can work it out because I would I would love to that would be so much fun to see. Um, and the <laughs> last really question and uh, this was originally not a question I was going to ask, but um, but I was thinking about just how big they got in England with those two first two albums, which is like enormously successful. Um, do you think there's a U.S. equivalent of Oasis in the sense of like a band that just becomes super super big with their first you know couple albums, even maybe two three albums? And then they kind of have that fall off and they never kind of get back to where they once were. Do you think that there is a U.S. equivalent of that? I don't I don't know. I, I, the scale to which Oasis blew up and then kind of faded, I, I have trouble equating to anything here. The, the only thing that comes to mind was and then we talked about it was Third Eye Blind's first two albums, mm-hmm. uh, two super high quality start to finish albums. And they blew up big for a period of time here. And they're still together touring. Mm-hmm. And I still like to go see them play because they're amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but And they're still recording albums. Um, but none of those albums live up to what they did consecutively. Have they been on. like, have they had a hit since Never Let You Go? Or Deep Inside of You? I don't think so. They, I mean, they, they had some stuff that, you know, at least made the radio with, with I think it was Ursa Minor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's some there's some really good stuff in there. I think their last album, Dopamine, um, is actually an awesome album, but it is a huge departure from their early days. Um, and so that would be my pick. I don't know what what are your thoughts on that question? It's a great question. I thought of I think the answer that you just gave was better than anything that I thought of because <laughs> really those first two albums were like really successful. Now obviously. If you put it in reverse, like if Blue came out first and Third Eye Blind, I think it would be even more similar to Oasis because, you know, Oasis obviously definitely maybe was big, but then the follow-up was even bigger. Right. Um, But they definitely, I think they even had a bigger fall-off than um, Oasis did. Mm -hmm. But I don't think, but I don't even, but Third Eye Blind, they weren't the cultural icons that Oasis was. For sure. Um, What I thought of three bands, and I'll tell you like kind of what I was, again, none of the bands that I'm about to mention, I think, compare that well to Oasis but the first band I thought of was the Ramones Hmm. Um, and that was just in terms of their first two albums their self-titled and Rocket to Russia are their like most critically acclaimed albums Um, and I don't think anything after that ever lived up to it now the Ramones weren't really that commercially successful 
while they were alive. Um, it wasn't until they like broke up that they really started to be recognized. But so like the Ramones were one of them, and then um, the other ones I thought of were the kit were the Killers mm. because you had like Hot Fuss and Sam's Town, um, and then the follow up to Sam's Town, and I can't remember the name. Those were like really big, and then I don't think they've had like a mainstream like single since. Right, and they were they were huge. They were huge, yeah. yeah, that's that's true. I never even considered the Killers, but I think that's a that's a great answer because they were massive uh, along that time that timeline where they put out those first albums. Uh, no, for, for sure, and like like hot fuss. I mean, like you know, Mr. Brightside, you know, is is in the conversation now with like Don't Stop Believing and uh, Sweet Caroline is just the this the, the karaoke anthems, right? Um, and then just like not, nothing really since. Obviously, they had you know hit subsequently, but nothing probably since the mid aughts, right? That has really resonated, you know, commercially. Um, and then the last band that I thought of was Guns N' Roses. Ooh, and that is. Kind of an interesting perspective because you had Appetite for Destruction, which is like the, which sold around the same amount of copies as what's sort of Morning Glory, and then like Use Your Illusion. I I thought about Use Your Illusion when when I was like reflecting on Be Here Now, um, because I think they're comparable. Like they were both so much hype um, with those releases, and I think Use Your Illusion did a better job. Now Use Your Illusion, obviously not as good as Appetite for for destruction, but mm. still, like a really good album, really popular, had a ton of hits. Had November Rain, which mm-hmm. I think is you know one of the great songs of all time in pop music. Uh, but then after Use Your Illusion, yeah, they had like Chinese Democracy and, and the Spaghetti Incident, which is a cover album. Um, but neither of those records really got any kind of accolades anywhere near as popular as you know Appetite for Destruction, Use Your Illusion. Right. So I I think Guns and Roses, but again. None of the bands that I just mentioned, I think, can compare to how just monumentally successful Oasis was and then all of a sudden just fell off, at least internationally. Um, or not internationally, because I know they had success in like other parts of Europe, but like in the U.S. Right. You know, so. Yeah. After Be Here Now is kind of a downward trajectory pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think those are fantastic answers. I had never really thought about Guns N' Roses is a great answer and... I really like the killer's take. I think that's that's a um, that's a really really good idea in terms of answering the question. I always find myself talking about the killers on on this podcast, and I haven't <laughs> had an episode like the second episode with you know Matt Prado. Yeah, uh, we talked quite a bit about the killers, and I, I I just love them, you know. Yeah, great band. I was I was also thinking about the Strokes, but I yeah. I, I don't know their albums very well, but I I know like along with the killers, they had they had kind of a shot to stardom. And then kind of have, I don't, I haven't heard anything from them recently. Well, they had that comeback album that they released. Um, it was good timing. Um, they released it like right at, right um, during the beginning of the shutdown from COVID. Probably, I think it must have come out in like March or April. So like when everybody was at home and everybody was, you know, uh, you know, ingesting content. Um, but actually, I, I really like that you brought up the Strokes because I think that if there is a, a U.S. equivalent to Liam, I think it's Julian <laughs> Casablancas. Yeah. Because I saw them, I saw the Strokes, they were play, They played at Shaky Knees in 2021. Okay. Um, and he, he just showed up on stage and he was just so, he was drunk out of his mind. And like they, I can't remember the name of the song, but they started playing a song and they had to stop because Julian was like, I don't remember the words. Next song. <laughs> That's yeah. That is an equivalent to Liam right there. A lot of swagger too, for, for sure. sure. For sure. 
Well, thank you for indulging me for that rant on <laughs> the last, you know, five minutes or so. But Matt, thank you so much for doing this. This was awesome. Um, and uh, hopefully you'll uh, rejoin the podcast again in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. Uh, really enjoyed kind of going back and listening through to the albums. Um, and it was fun to jam prior to the uh, to the podcast, too. So thanks a lot. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Matt Lutley for being a tremendous guest. Have a great rest of your day, and whatever it brings, hopefully music is involved. Again, I'm Dub Brenner, and this is Hotcakes from a 90s Stand. Take care.